the greatest thing in all my life is to know the Lord and to love the Lord and I want more. It's never going to stop. Never going to stop. The more we desire, the more we're able to receive because God expands the vessel truly. They say that space is expanding. How much more the human soul, our own hearts, where we are expanded amazingly. Just when we thought, I'm so full of God's presence right now. I'm so full of the Spirit. I, I feel like I'm in heaven, such joy, such peace. But all of a sudden we see that there's room for more. I'm expanding in my soul, and God has meant it that way. He's done it, and he's pouring even more. Glory be to God. That is the glorious treasure, the glorious good news. The more we know God, the more we love God, the more he increases our capacity to know him and love him. Which means he fills us with himself even more. The greatest thing in all my life is serving you. The greatest thing in all my life is serving you. Lord, I want to serve you more. I want to serve you more. The greatest thing in all of my life is serving you. A divine order. First, I've got to know him properly in order to love him truly, in order to serve him faithfully. I've got to know him. The proper knowledge of God, the real knowledge of God, really know him. Through his revelation and spending time with him, it draws my heart to a deep affection for the Lord. I have true love for the Lord. Remember in John 15, it says, the Lord says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine, and you are the branches. Certainly. He expects us to be true branches because we're connected to the true vine. And because I know my Savior more and more, that love relationship grows. It just eclipses everything in my life. That everything else is but a shadow. This truly is a substance. It's what I live for. I know the Lord. I love the Lord. And because of that, I'm able to serve Him the way He wants me to serve Him. In John chapter 2, we come to this wonderful miracle that the Lord Jesus did in this place called Cana of Galilee. A miracle. He showed up. The Lord showed up to this event because he wanted to be there. God wanted to be there. He wasn't there by accident. He was there by intention. 
On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Isn't that awesome? Imagine God being at your function, whatever it is. You have people that you invite and you sometimes gauge their importance like people do in this world based upon their popularity, their status economically, their um, charisma, their talents. Uh, if they're the life of the party then certainly they've got to be high up on the list of people you invite to your function because they enhance you and they honor you by coming when they have so much uh, attractiveness in various ways. Now at the top of the list, imagine if you had the ability to invite the Son of God to your function. The same one we read about in the previous chapter as we're going consecutively and today the Holy Spirit has led us to go to the next chapter in John's Gospel which we've begun recently. But we read about this eternal word who is supreme. He created everything that exists. And to make it emphatically clear the Bible says in John chapter 1 that there is nothing made. There is absolutely nothing made that was not made by him. Is he VIP? On all counts? By all standards? He's the one who created space. Not a planet only, but space itself. And every creature, visible and invisible, Colossians picks up on that, the creative power of the Son of God, the Trinity, working together, and particularly, speaking of Jesus, as the Gospels bring forth the Son of God, who is the Son of Man, God dwelling in the midst of us, to have that person who created visible things and invisible things, to come to your party, to come to our function, Who would have known that this Jesus that was among the people invited, along with his mother and his disciples, we have the creator of the universe, not the creator of some kind of invention, a famous patent, and he's got the rights. Uh, he achieved something remarkable. He's the Olympic swimmer of all time. Uh, he's got this, he's got that. housed in this mortal body, Jesus Christ was the God of the universe. Now, we know this story. There was a shortage of this very important ingredient in celebrations, which is wine for most people. And when they ran out of wine, verse 3, John chapter 2, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now why would she say that to him? 
if he's just one of the people invited and he's not even in charge of the feast? The answer is obvious. She knew that he had the power to do something about this. And certainly it was not that Jesus could call some of his trusted, most trusted disciples and go buy some wine somewhere. Somehow, this Mary came to know that when there's a problem, she can rely upon her son. But Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What is this hour? There was a set time in which the Father had determined that the Lord Jesus would be made public as to his power and origin. It was a progressive revelation. And what would happen if he would do a miracle right here? Things could go wrong and prematurely things could unravel contrary to the Father's plan. There's a problem here and they're trying to involve Jesus. But he's establishing that he's on a mission from the Father. That is, he has a set time for everything. And yet, the answer was not a no. We'll explain this as we go along. Shortage of wine. The mother of Jesus comes to him. They have no wine. He addresses his mother, not in a derogatory way, as we might understand it today, someone saying woman, but it said that it was actually more along the lines of dear woman. So it was not offensive, but he conveyed that he's in control, he's in charge. Not in an egotistical way, but that's the fact. He's on his father's mission. There's an exact blueprint and program, even for the Son of God. We often talk about our lives, and we tell people, God has a plan for your life. He has a master plan for your life. He has a blueprint for your life. There's a diagram, there's a schematic uh, representation of your life. There's a pattern in heaven regarding you, whom God created in the womb of your mother, and just like God showed Moses a pattern on the mountain in Exodus, how he made the tabernacle and all the instructions so detailed for every part of it, because this was supposed to be the dwelling of God in a temporary mobile uh, precursor to a temple. This is a mobile version. What is a temple if God is not there? It's for God. So that tabernacle had a pattern and 
when God spoke to Moses, it's written in the scriptures very clearly that God actually showed Moses the blueprint. He showed him the pattern. He said, this is what's up in heaven. I want you to replicate that. Just like I show you. And so our lives have that blueprint. Lo and behold, when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, comes into the world, he has a blueprint also. He became a man and he had to follow that blueprint. And he loved it because he loved his Father. We have this harmony. Our lives get out of harmony with God and we are no longer God's blueprint. And that's how we have come to be so broken and each one of us have come to the cross at some point and said, Lord, I give up. I give up. Because I can see very clearly, I thought I was okay. I was doing good and I was able to take some of these shots in life and bounce right back. This resilience is something I'm proud of. And it's wonderful when you have a bunch of people who failed, but now they're succeeding, and you can huddle together and encourage one another. How wonderful that is, just like a sports team. But then we come to the point we see, you know what? All of this stuff is an illusion because at the core of my being, I really don't have satisfaction. I have no real prospect for eternal life. Um, things seem to be so cyclical. It just keeps going back in the same pattern. We come to the cross broken and we find out, oh, so God had a blueprint for my life even before I was formed in the womb, actually. And if I can just get back on that plan, get heaven's GPS, I want to be back on track. I'm tired of these detours, been in too many ditches, been getting lost all the time. The sights were nice along the way, but I ended up paying a heavy price. The taxation was not fair from the devil. I don't want the devil's blueprint. We need to understand as we continue in John chapter 2 and consider that the Son of God had a blueprint from the Father that when we deviate from God's blueprint, we are by default not on one of uh, five different county roads or ten different back roads, but we're on the devil's road. That's what the Lord says, and he's true. Anytime we get off of God's highway, we by default end up on the devil's highway. And the devil is a master deception, a deceiver I should say, and he brings a deception to make us feel like you're coasting. You may not be going full throttle, but don't worry, you'll pick up speed. Right now, at least you're coasting, you're fine, you're not falling anywhere, but he sets up things where once we're under his spell, he can trust us and say, you know what, I've got this Jack. He's on my trip pretty good. And I've wound him up real good so that I don't even have to bother with him anymore. He's going to go crashing into that mountain there. I have better things to do with my time. Let me find another person that I can start to deceive and wind up. 
And once I get him going, I know. He's going to head straight for the destination. And I can go to the next one. What a horror. It doesn't have to be that way. The Lord Jesus was exactly in the Father's perfect will every second that he lived. Every second. And one of the reasons that the Lord Jesus came down from heaven, the main supreme reason is to pay for our sins but also to show us how when as a man every one of us human beings when we follow the father's commandments as he did as a man we will also be in God's perfect will accomplishing his plans and purposes for our lives and will be fulfilled no wonder the Lord said, He that believes on me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. will be filled with the Holy Spirit. No more talk, church talk, Christian lingo. I got the Spirit, you got the Spirit, he's anointed, I'm anointed, and we're feeling fine, and I love Jesus. And But the real deal is there there's a deep satisfaction and a bubbling where you know what comes out righteousness holiness God's qualities from who a human vessel he told the woman at the well in Samaria we'll read that in a couple of chapters another day he says whoever drinks of the water that I have to give him he told this woman that that water will go into that person whereby that person will never thirst again. But instead, the water that they drink from Jesus, once he gives them that water, it will become a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Where can you buy this water? How much would you be willing to pay for that water? It's a perpetual well. Imagine that. They talk about discovering the fountain of youth. People made trips all over the world trying to discover somebody had a bright idea. There's a fountain of youth somewhere. Whoever finds that, they're going to be the luckiest person. Forever young. No such thing exists. But on earth that is but heaven has a fountain. Heaven has water that is living. Jesus lived. He walked in our shoes. He literally became a human being to show us he can have that fullness of life. Now, that fullness that was within him was able to produce fullness for other people. He said to his mother, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The hour would be the hour of manifesting who he is progressively to everyone. It's not time. It's not time. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. He didn't say no. 
and she had people ready to do what he said. And there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. What water? The regular water. But he's about to pour some of his living water and it's about to work in a manner where the need is met. You see? When the Spirit of God touches our life and our situation, whatever the need is, God is able to produce for us. He's a miracle-working God. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, notice, he didn't know where it came from. The Lord didn't make it public. It's not the time. Soon he would do miracles openly. But it's not the time. Throughout this whole scenario, only his disciples and the people who drew that water they must have been perplexed, but nothing more than that. It was not a public event where the Lord openly did it so everybody can see. And this is not the Father's timing. They took that water. For all they knew, it's water. Something happened, and this master of the feast he didn't know where it came from, although the servants knew. He called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. Why? Because they don't have the sensibility to know that it's some bad stuff. This is the bottom of the barrel they're giving me. But they don't know. They're already drunk. And apparently they had a good amount to drink already, but this man had his sensibilities intact, and he recognized on this, it's a good wine. In fact, it came from Jesus. It was the best wine. But you can know, even last year, the latest research that's out there internationally confirmed is that alcohol And even the slightest amount does damage to the body. This is what they've come up with recently. Because there was the theory and discussion for a long time that it takes about this much to really affect you. And uh, virtually no damage if you have that fermented stuff. If you take a little bit once in a while, they said no. Even a little bit once, it can begin some damage in the body. Now, would the Lord Jesus produce such a wine that can cause damage to the very body he created that he says has to be a temple of the Holy Spirit? That would be a dire contradiction. He would not do such a thing. He's holy. And there are two types of wine. One is fermented. One is actually unfermented. And the one that's unfermented, if you look at Roman literature, Greek literature in biblical times, 
That stuff is the sweetest tasting one, the unfermented one. So let no one take this, the playing devil's advocate or the devil's representative, and twist it and say, see, even Jesus made wine. So it's good stuff. I can drink. Remember, the Lord will never give anything to damage us. That's contrary to his character. And therefore, this wine that he gave, we can be sure. It's not the type that people love to use and abuse their bodies. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifests his glory. Yes, he showed his glory, but to who? Primarily to his disciples. Those servants knew, but it was not a public event, you see. His hour hadn't come. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. How are they going up if they're going south from Galilee down? It's because Jerusalem is elevated. It's situated on higher terrain. So he has to go up even though he's going south. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen. What? Selling livestock in the temple? In the temple? And sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. This incident or similar incident in the other Gospels is placed uh, toward the end of Jesus' life. When he went and looked at the temple, he surveyed it one last time. And then he cleansed the temple. Here in John's Gospel, it's placed uh, in the beginning chapters. But nonetheless, what happened and its significance is the same. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. They, were, they set up shop. They're literally sitting there. They became very comfortable, apparently, sitting in church doing business. Now notice what Jesus does. What's his reaction to this? He's coming to the temple. After all, you can sell oxen and sheep and doves outside. Maybe on your farm. You can do it on the street. But on temple grounds, maybe they would uh, justify themselves. That, well, we're doing this to help the people come to sacrifice to God. But the Lord knows the motives of every human being. These people are in it for the money. They could care less about God. They were just uh, people who used God's name, used church to advance whose kingdom? Their own kingdom. More money in my pocket it makes me a happy boy. And all the more if we can persuade people, hey, I'm helping you get close to God. Fork up the money and you can have your animals for sacrifice or come here. 
I'll tell you what, even if you don't want to use it for sacrifice, I'm not telling anybody. Go. Stick that oxen in your truck. And take that sheep, put them in a bag, and just uh, go your way. Business is business, and it's nice doing business with you. Well, the Lord made a whip of cords. A whip. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. The Lord stopped business right there. He shut the business down. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house, this devotion, this loyalty, this fire of passionate love toward God and his temple because the temple is the house of God zeal for your house has eaten me up just drove him to say get this stuff out of here so the Jews answered and said to him "Uh, what sign do you show to us since you do these things I mean You've just done something we've never seen done. You upset everyone. What's going on with you? You better show us by some sign that you're authorized to do what you just did. This is ridiculous. They would have been thinking. Jesus answered and said to them, He's not going to oblige for their fancy to see a sign and entertain them. The Lord doesn't come to any of us to satisfy our foolish curiosity. So we can make our false promises to him. Jesus said, you want to see a sign? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? He didn't have to explain himself. These people weren't true. And we're going to read what he thought about people whose hearts weren't right. Then the Jews said, 46 years and you're going to do it in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body three days later. Now notice this. The Bible says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible also says the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead. Here Jesus is saying, I will raise up my body from the dead. Now what kind of power is that? That the Son of God who died as the Son of Man still lived and he raised the dead body up. He rose bodily. The resurrection was a bodily resurrection. That's why the scars are still there. The body that had virtue where power came out to heal people of all kinds of sicknesses could not see corruption King David prophesied could not be held in death he conquered death he conquered the grave he conquered sin thereby giving each one of us hope if we love him and follow him 
even if we die physically, we will live forever. He has power to raise his own body. He said, you destroy this body, you crucify this body, it's going to die. I will raise it up in three days. That's what he did. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. How many churches operate purely from a business point of view? And what does God feel about that? Many people say, well, we've been doing business here for 60 years. And we didn't have an earthquake. Nobody came here overturning the tables. and Everybody's happy. Because the bottom line is the dollar, your net gain. Everybody wins. The same Lord that was so incensed, so angry, and rightfully so, that the people's motives were corrupt. They didn't really love God. They didn't really want God. They came to do business. They came to fill their pockets and feel good. God said, get out of here right now. That's the same feeling he has today. Burning with zeal and passion and any place that calls itself a house of God and dishonors God and brings in the devil's wares, his merchandise, to do his stuff. You can be sure God will overthrow that place. Now, it may take a while because of his great patience to see if somebody will come on the scene, at least one person to say, this is wrong. Even if they stone him, he'll still say it's wrong. Maybe they'll repent. But in any event, God himself will come. He'll not only shut it down, he will assign the places in hell to everybody who had a part in it who hadn't repented. That's the reality of it. With what fear should we um, ever touch anything to do with God or claim association with the holy living God and uh, decide to do in his house if we call it his church because essentially although the church is organically made up of members of Christ's body all throughout the world and the family of God is said in Ephesians are both in heaven and on earth at the same time. One family. People who have died in the Lord and they're in heaven with God. Those on the face of the earth yet to go to heaven. All one family. But on the earth, believers are all over the place. And together they make one body. But when they gather together in a local place, that place where they meet becomes hallowed ground. Isn't that the truth? Why? Because the Holy Spirit that's on the inside of every genuine born-again person who really is not grieving the Spirit away but yielding to the Spirit and obeying Him, when they come together, the Holy Spirit is present and Jesus says, I'll be there in a special way because where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Well, that place is going to become sanctified. 
we can properly call the place where genuine believers congregate, especially to worship the temple of God. It may not look like a temple. It may even be open grounds, but at that time it becomes a tabernacle where God comes in a special way. On those grounds that we claim as the space where we worship the living God, if we bring any kind of business or wrong motive, adulterous heart, covetousness, can you imagine the anger that will come from Almighty God? And although it may not happen instantly, you can be sure He will reward everyone according as His work shall be. As we quoted Revelation 22.12 the other day. Everyone will get, not according to what they profess and they confess and they sign on the dotted line that, look, I did this, that, and the other thing. They say, no. The reward I have for you, the payment, when payday comes, is exactly according to what you really did. If you didn't honor me, you're going to get punished. And you're not going to live with me. You're going to be in another place. But if you honored me, I'm going to be so full of joy to come and give you that crown. It'll never fade away. It's our choice. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mentioned about what Jesus thinks about people when he really knows their hearts. People who give lip service, people who want to associate with God because it's the in thing to do, you transplant them into an area of the earth where there's intense persecution for being Christian, you see how much they want to associate with Jesus. They will do worse than Peter. At least Peter had some integrity and he failed under the situation's intensity and for not preparing by watching and praying, but at least he had some degree of sincerity. People will do business and they desecrate God's holy name and his church and the work of the Holy Spirit God will say to them I never knew you depart from me you cursed into the everlasting fire you didn't do my will but Lord we open churches Lord, did you know how much I contributed to 57 mission stations all over Brazil? All over the Amazon? Even if I go and give my body to be burned so that the villagers can live somewhere in remote part of the world. If I don't have love, it means nothing to God. I lose. Even if I die for somebody, if I don't have love as the motivating factor, the genuine love of God, which means I fear God. I can't do a heroic act and expect to go to heaven and be commended and given medals and awards. The world may do it, but then the world is under deception. They go by superficial standards, 
that are faulty. And that's why the Lord Jesus said this, note this, that which is highly esteemed in the sight of men, that means among people, things that they really honor and they esteem, and they say, look at that, isn't that something? Look at that person. Look at those people. Wow. The Bible says that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. It's absolutely opposite. But if I come to Jesus and I say, Lord, I'm, I'm in the midst of confusion, Lord. Like Isaiah the prophet, I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. They're all dirty. Honestly, there's nobody I can trust. Because the world is so full of evil and bribery and theft and murder and lies upon lies upon lies. Everybody knows you can't survive without lying. And so you've got to know how to lie effectively. That's all. It's all a matter of who knows how to play the game and who's too bad. They didn't learn how to do it properly, so they got caught. We come to the cross, we say, Lord, this is the situation. I don't want to go to hell. Lord, I don't want to see everything burned up in the end, and myself also. Oh God, I know people have died, and they have no way to get out of hell. It's over. I can't presume upon tomorrow or another heartbeat. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. How many times, even recently, we've heard that? Tragedy of tragedies. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But isn't that wonderful? They believed the miracles. But apparently, their belief was like that seed that fell on that rocky ground shot up immediately all excited bubbling over wow this is the greatest thing that's happened to me I can't wait to call all my people and tell them I've been touched by God I've been touched by God but the moment they have to follow God, when things get a little rough or temptation comes, all of a sudden the zeal for Jesus and the Christianity they thought they got just evaporates into thin air. And they're back to the drawing board. And this is what Jesus said, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. The word of God right here says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them. He couldn't say, I'll be your Lord, because he knew. They didn't want him to be Lord, but they loved for him to be a Savior. Come on, show me some miracles, Lord. Uh, you got any prophecy for me? Can you make me rich? Can you make me popular? Uh, can you make me feel better? I love to have Jesus as my family physician and my broker. Uh, the manager of my portfolio. But to 
turn to him and follow his commandments to be righteous in all my dealings, holy in my heart, obedient to him, loving other people to the point where I'm able to sacrifice and no one needs to know about it. I love to follow Jesus. He says, when you give, don't let one hand know what the other hand is doing. No publicity, no stunts. A real commitment. Jesus couldn't say that about these people, apparently. Well, they're excited when they saw the signs, but when he looks at the people, he can see right through to their heart. He knew. What does this do to me as I read this and preach this this morning? It brings a godly fear in me and it just reinforces it every time I read the word. That I better be true to the Lord. And it's not a fear-motivated obedience. It's, I love the Lord. I thank God Jesus is not tricked. He can't be deceived by anyone. Hallelujah. He's a true vine. And I want to be a true branch. I want to love like he loved. And it must start with loving God with all my heart first. With all my mind first. With all my strength. With all my soul. And then really love other people. And never looking to what I can get from them, but to give and to give. And the more I give, the more God pours into me. That's the law of the kingdom. Unfortunately, in this case, Jesus couldn't commit himself to them. He couldn't say, follow me, I'll be your Lord. Because he knew all men. He knew everyone. He knows every one of us. And uh, he didn't need anyone to testify of the various people. Because he knew what was in man. Now, man on the whole, mankind, we talk about the world on the whole, as a whole. Where are they headed? Unfortunately, by virtue of their own choice, not because God wants to send them to hell, they make their choice. I don't want God. What's the alternative? The devil. But I, I don't believe in the devil. That's okay. He still exists. And you're still dangling by the marionette strings that he's manipulating. The person is given grace to have the eyes open. I'm dangling over here. And the master of my life, I thought it was me, but I see it's Satan because everything I do has nothing to do with God. I want out of this. I want Jesus. We come to the cross and when the Lord bails us out of so many situations where we should have perished. The Bible says that the goodness of God should lead a person to really think hard and say, you know what? I need to turn to God or turn back to God. Otherwise, I'm going to end up in eternal misery. A real hell where the real fire burns, not quenched. Real worms come and bite the body that cannot perish. Where I'll be weeping. Horrible screams. I'll be gnashing my teeth, frustrated, regretting forever that I had the opportunity and I missed it. I missed it. I thought I could do it. Save it for a rainy day. Too late. If any one of us could ever recall the loudest scream we've ever heard 
or the most horrifying blood-curdling scream we've ever heard, maybe in real life, maybe in the movies. There's all that enhanced audio effect. I mean, it just sent chills up your spine. You picture that. Hell is infinitely more horrific than that. Because a person cannot just disintegrate. They're fully conscious. I know people had dreams where they saw their loved ones who didn't surrender to the Lord. And the dreams of this person was alive. Those people came and they held this person down in a chair. This person was shaking. Woke up. So scared. It was just a dream. Imagine the real thing. Where demons can come and impersonate. And there's a conveyance of a, a little bit of degree of what hell is like. Because they played with their life. They thought, I can call the shots. I can do whatever I want. And uh, at the end of the day, when I take my last breath, I'll call for the chaplain or I'll call my pastor or I'll break out that Bible that I haven't really opened in 50 years and I know exactly where to go to. I have it marked. I have it marked because somebody told me that the most important thing you can do is receive Jesus in your heart. And if you've done that, you haven't lived for him, well, you can come back. You just got to say the sinner's prayer all over again. So I've got a mark in my Bible and I always carry it. I'm saving it for that day. But Jesus won't commit himself to you if you think that you can play him. In our hearts. And thank God that this morning, as you sang the song in the beginning, we really want to know him. The awesome God. We really want to love him. Love that's out of this world. But it comes from heaven into our hearts. We really want to serve him with everything that's within us. Because no other life is worthwhile. No other life. Other than knowing God, a life that loves God, a life that serves God. And there's no in-between and manipulation. And there's no deal that I can cut with God. I'll serve you on Sunday and Wednesday and Friday. The other days, God, you've got to give it to me. Or I'll serve you a few minutes and the rest of the day belongs to me. Or I'll serve you the whole day, Lord. The whole day that I serve you in church or in charity work, I'll be adulterous and covetous. Uh, God won't know the difference. In the Psalms, it's a fanatic, it's a fool that will say that, but it's written in the Psalms that some people say, God does not see, uh, God does not hear, and nobody can stop me. God says this is what people think. Even if somebody will say, well, no, 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 I'm not that kind of fool. I know God sees in here. He's God. Well, you act that way. In essence, it's the same thing. The fear of God comes upon us. We're able to live the life and convey to other people who are gambling with their lives and souls to tell them, you better shake out of this drunkenness you better wake up because you may find yourself in hell sooner than you think. Oh, what a tragedy. Oh, what a statement. 
Oh, how horrible. The good news for us is, as Jesus came and met the need in that wedding, and we really see how God Almighty condescended. He came so down to our level. He's going to show up at a wedding. What if you said, I don't have time for this? <laughs> a wedding? I mean, weddings happen every day. I've got to go and preach over there. No, the Father wanted him there at that time. And although it was not time for the public full display of who he was in his power, his disciples' faith got strengthened. Are you one of the disciples? And God wants to strengthen your faith. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me. He's concerned. Something that we may think in uh, his uh, divine scope it might be an everyday thing, uh, one among many, uh, quite insignificant to him. After all, he's seen it all and he's running the universe. So is it time to come to a wedding? There's no mention that this wedding was some kind of uh, wedding of some great nobles or big dignitaries. It's just a wedding. But the Lord cares. He didn't come saying, I'm here, everyone, clear the way. And where's my seat? I have honor. He came humbly. He came lovingly. Even though he told Mary something that she needed to learn. It's something that we all need to learn. God has a timetable. He has a set time that he does things. Uh, we need to follow that. We shouldn't dictate to him how we'd like to run our lives and have him come and bless it. Rather yield to him and say, Father, what is the blueprint again? I really want to follow that, Lord. Oh, I thank you, God, that you're not done with me. Oh, thank you, God, that you didn't tear the blueprint up because I was so rebellious. Oh, God. It's still there. The copy's still there. The pattern's still there. I can still get back on that. Oh, hallelujah. I'm not going to blow it this time. That's it. That's it. Is Jesus all the way? Give me the word. Give me that book. Give me the treasure of God's promises. I can see now clearly. I was blind all over again, but I can see. I cannot miss this. And he humbled himself out of his compassion to meet the need. Imagine if you said, oh, what do I have to do with you? You want me to do what? You, you want me to be involved in uh, a shortage of some drink? You think I, I, I came to do that? The more we read the Word of God, the more we walk with the Lord, the more acquainted we are with Him, truly, truly knowing Him. We really have this wonderful confidence. Yes, my Lord cares about every detail. Every detail of my life. He not only knows all about it, because He's God, He cares all about it. You know why? Because it concerns His child. 
How beautiful. Instead of Abraham Lincoln and my little boy Joseph, it brings us to my attention time to time, among other things that it reads about noble people. He said in the middle of the cabinet meeting, Abraham Lincoln would let his children come. They'll be literally crawling on his shoulder in the midst of a very intense cabinet meeting. And if anybody objected to it or made faces, he'll tell them, listen, this is all the happiness that I have during this time, for the Civil War especially. He loved them. He enjoyed them. He played with them. He had time for them. In the midst of the most difficult time in his life, so much stress, such a deep burden he carried, but he had time for the little ones. He had time to let them play as the supreme commander in the whole country to let the little ones come, not just to have a toy there, but they wanted to crawl on daddy's shoulders in the midst of the meeting. Now, if an earthly father can do that, how much more our Heavenly Father cares about our needs? There's a shortage in your life. There's a shortage in my life. I can know that the God who knows the hearts of all people, when he sees that I am broken and I'm sincere, I might have not pleased him, but I'm coming to him and say, Daddy, will you forgive me? I have a need. Would you still care about me? We just have to remember the prodigal son story and come running. Love is so overwhelming. A heart that cares about every detail of my existence. Nothing is too insignificant for God when it comes to you and to me. He will give us the best. I will be amazed. You'll be amazed how it keeps getting better. And it seems the best keeps coming. It becomes bester. Always the best. Always uh, an increase. And you know, other people know also. In your family, they know the genuine presence of God has come. Because uh, not just the material things and the physical needs, but there's this wellspring of life the living water bubbling out of us. The fruit of the Spirit coming from the Spirit. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Self-control. Unmistakable divine qualities coming from a human being out of whose belly flows rivers of living water. God cares. He wants to make our lives what it ought to be, what they ought to be. And he wants to give us the abundant life, overflowing, and nothing's going to shake us because we don't take stock in anything because everything will be shaken. But not my faith in God and my life in God, my access to God, because I know him, I want to know him more. I love him, I want to love him more. I serve him, I want to serve him more. 
victory all the way through the blood of Jesus. He cares. He cares about you and me inside and out. He cares about relationships that we're involved in. He wants to heal. That's the God I know. That's the God I love. There's no love like his love. He came to Cain of Galilee. To an ordinary event. That would have happened every day. But because he was present, he not only solved the shortage issue, he exceeded it by giving the best. And God always gives the best for us. Should we not turn our lives over to him? Trust him. The Lord, you lead me. I know the Father has a timetable. God, I don't want to miss any point on that schedule. I don't want to miss the blueprint. Fill me. So I overflow. Bring glory and honor to you. Shall we pray? In fact, before I pray, I'd like um, whoever you, uh, whoever of you has been ministered to by God's word, by spirit, to go ahead and pray.